When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying And you've taken all the potions you had left And you feel like you are doomed because that demon you set loose is coming after you And you can smell its breath Don't ever give up Hello, welcome to the Real Point Exchange. This is Adam, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts uh, Chris And Aaron And special guest Greg Stolze, it's great to be back Oh, great. Greg, it's great to have you. I think you're up for, do you want the monogrammed RPX t-shirt or the coffee mug? So you're, they're near a cast I'll member. Go for, I, I will go for the t-shirt. Uh, I've, I've got, I've got a ton of mugs. My, uh, my youngest spinners. son rides me about now. My <laughs> oldest son would ride me if I got a, a fidget spinner. He'd be like, dad, <laughs> dad, you're embarrassing me. I can't even see you right now. And you're embarrassing me. I feel it. <laughs> The, uh, the voodoo dolls haven't come in yet. We're still waiting on those. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We're tickled to have you back. Man, I've mentioned it in the past, but the first two games I ever played recently, well, when I got back in role-playing games, was Unknown Armies and Rain. And it, if I'm not mistaken, I think you got some special news about Rain for us? Yes. Yes, I do. If you're not familiar with what I was doing with Rain, it it's my my fantasy role playing game that I wrote. Every designer, um, almost every game designer has one, right? And I, I like to believe it's not a fantasy heartbreaker that it's actually a fantasy heart lover. This metaphor may have gone awry. Anyway, Rain. I published it as a book and as a PDF and started using very early crowdfunding systems to release a big fat pile of kind of disorganized supplemental material for it. Uh, So a lot of it was for the base setting, which is these uh, civilizations that are on the body of two dead or possibly only sleeping giants or possibly gods. They're continent-sized entities. And so it's, you know, I was going for high weird fantasy where, you know, the sun and the moon are fixed points in the sky. And instead of rising and setting, they just, you know, wax and wane. And where uh, the the nature of the topography is very, very different from the the sort of flat map or continuous globe that you're you're used to picturing. So that it's possible to have there are places where it's possible to ride west from this city, come to another city, keep riding west from that one, and wind up back at the first city. So it's a it's a fun setting. It's it's odd. And what I was trying to do with it was set up a uh, this was this was before Game of Thrones, but I uh, you know I was maybe a little ahead of the curve on this in that I'm like, what if the characters were in charge of things? And this probably grew from my early D and D games where if you got high enough level as a fighter, you like got a castle and a group of men at arms, but there were no rules for it. And I'm like, wait, I want to get to that level and have a castle and be a boss and tell my men at arms, you know, what to do and maintain my fief. And so I, I built a game around that concept that this is not a world that needs to be saved, but that it is a world that needs to be governed and set up a rule structure so that the player characters are not just a bunch of randos who have nothing in common who get together to loot a temple, which is a fun and super valid way to play. But, you know, there's a lot of competition in that space. And I wanted to do something different where it's like, you guys are the wizards who are running the wizard college, or you're the head honchos of the thieves guild, or you're running a a mercenary company like in Kings of the Wild, or that, you know, you've got your own nation. Uh, And of course, I've tried to make everything as conflict-rich as possible. So if you're going to be running a nation, you're going to have this tiny little bucket nation wedged in between two bigger, stronger ones, each of one, each of which is held back only by the thought that, oh, if we overextend ourselves kicking over the bucket here, then our rivals will perceive our weakness. So 
You know, you could run a whole game, a whole rain game. That's just, okay, we're just going to have to play these two giant opposing forces against one another until we can, you know, change the situation somehow. It's so really fascinating. That's, yeah. that's my very, very long discursive discussion of rain. And uh, I put out a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff for it. I put out some new settings. I put out one that was sort of inspired by, J.K. Rowling for a, a medieval setting where people are, you know, every family, every couple generations has a wizard born into it and they have to go off to get trained or disaster impends. Uh, I did another setting that was sort of typical fantasy races. You've got your elves, dwarves, orcs, gnomes, but no people. And, uh, you know, so it's this this fairly primitive, I think it's like, Bronze Age, early, maybe early steel smelting or early iron working age, where you've got these six different races sort of interacting, but always looking at each other a little bit askance. And I did a science fiction setting for it. Uh, So I've, I've done a bunch of different stuff that's sort of been scattered. And what I want to do now is unify all that, organize it better probably simplify the system a little. That's always a a fraud endeavor. When Rain first came out in, you know, the late 2000s, I think the the sort of mainstream of the art was a little more complicated and subsystem intensive than it is now. So I might clean it up and make it look a little more like a 2018 game and a little less like it's 10 years old, you know, your basic cosmetic surgery. But as always, I did, you don't want to change it so much that the people who've been with you for all the time no longer feel like it's, you know, the same thing. But yeah, it's definitely yeah. one of the crunchiest of the uh, One Real Engine games. Maybe the only thing that's crunchier is uh, Wild Talents. Wild Talents is definitely crunchier, I would say. And part of the reason is that... It's it, it did it did suffer from some system creep and, you know, subsystems encrust on it like barnacles, which I don't think is necessarily bad unless you try to use all of them. So one thing I one of my goals for this, I've, I've reread all the files, uh, you know, all. Oh, it was something like 800,000 words of text. It's it's going to be at, at the very least two huge books. And, you know, there was a, there is a lot of stuff where it's like, okay, if I was running a game that was all, we're going to be sailing around being pirates, then this subsystem's great. But if you're not doing that, the subsystem is kind of pointless. And, you know, if you're running a, a, a game where you're a mercenary company, then the rules for mass combat engage, uh, engagements are, you know, those are going to be very useful. But if you're just running some random princely intrigue thing, the one time you have armies in the field, you're not going to want to learn a whole new set of rules for them. So what I really want to do is make it more of a, a toolbox set of Legos kind of approach where you can take the stuff where you're like, okay, this is in keeping with the story I want to tell. You know, for an example, there's a, a set of rules called after them, which is sort of, okay, here's how you take a chase scene and make it something much more interesting than, well, I roll run. Well, I roll run. Well, I roll hide. Well, I roll search. And it's like, you know, here's how you can turn it into a, uh, you know, strategic parkour like, okay, I'm going to run through the market, grab something to disguise myself, hide behind this, uh, you know, duck under the water to foil the hounds. Well, okay, I'm going to be on the horse circling around and calling out to my, you know, my followers and telling them to spread through and trying to get to the high ground to, to spot. And it, if you're running a crime game, then definitely you want that. But if you're running something where you're only going to have a chase scene, you know, once or twice in your in your campaign, no, you don't need to carry that baggage. So that was always how I envisioned it, but I am going to do a much better job of explaining it. That is definitely something that I, I did see as kind of an issue when I was playing it initially. It is, it's a 
fascinating system. It's just not laid out the greatest. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I'm I'm ahead of you there. And yeah. So and you know, I, I think I think I will be able to streamline it and make it much more of a thing where you come in and you say, okay, I'm going to be using these, you know, the simplified combat rules, but, uh, you know, I'm going to pay a lot of attention to the company rules and it's going to be all palace intrigue all the time. And that, you know, then you can get something that fits that instead of having a one size fits, you know, currently, if you tried to use everything, it would be like one size fits all because that size is a tent. <laughs> so the real question is how are you going to add in the unknown armies better angels a dirty world style like i get hit now i'm better at punching or being I'm sad i'm not doing <laughs> that 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 is so that is so fundamental it would be like doing a skeleton replacement surgery <laughs> if i changed it that fundamentally it would be actually easier to just burn the whole thing to the ground and start over than try to pull that and replace it. Uh, you know, it would be covered with scars. I am going to address the fact that things cost one. You know, there's one economy for buying up your skills and stats when you're building a character and then an entirely different one for improving with experience points. And I am getting rid of that. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. Well, I do know what I was thinking. But it, it is clear now in retrospect that that was an error, and it is one I will repair. Ten years later. Ten years later. <laughs> it's like, hmm, I don't think that's that much fun. So when did the uh, idea strike you to revisit Rain? Um, I'd always wanted to do it. Um, in the supplements that I ransomed out and that are free on the internet, uh, I had to do the art myself. And so there's not much of it and it's not very good. And I always wanted it to look better. The, the original book looked fantastic. The story behind that is kind of interesting, actually. I'd hired Daniel Solis to do the layout. He was unknown. It was the first book he ever laid out himself. And, you know, I was of the opinion you will you will get online at, or you would get online back then and see people saying, I don't care what the book looks like. All I care about is the quality of the text. And, you know, don't give me I don't need any artwork or or fancy layout or box text. And you know, this was at the sort of the height of White Wolf design decadence, where, you know, some of their stuff looked really cool. Some of their stuff was white print on a textured gray background and it just terrible, terrible, terrible to read. So, you know, there was this backlash of people saying, just give me the simple text and I will imagine everything myself. And I thought, okay, people say they want this. We'll do this. I'll hire this guy to format my text into two columns because my word processor can't do that. And I'll take it to the printer. And instead... Instead, Daniel made this gorgeous, gorgeous book where, you know, the fonts are evocative and there's these beautiful but non-intrusive uh, textures in the margins. And it's easy to navigate because there's graphical cues that show you when a section's going to end. And he found all this stock art that he could get for free. And the book looked absolutely fantastic. And it completely 180'd my thinking on the importance of presentation. And I'm like, those people who think they just want plain text haven't really gotten a lot of books that are just plain text. Or, you know, they are loud outliers. Most people care if a book looks great. And so the original Rain looked great. And the supplements that I did myself looked, I think, less great. That's fair to say. So what I did was I allied myself with Hal Mangold at Atomic Overmind Press because he's good at the publisher tasks of doing layout and finding artists and budgeting things and getting printing done and shipping and storing and uh, setting prices and fulfillment. These are all things that I have done, but have never done particularly well. 
self-publishing is a lot easier now with print on demand, but to get a reasonably priced book full of good art is beyond my abilities right now. So Hal is really stepping in to do the stuff I can't do and freeing me up to do the stuff I can do, which is improve the mechanics and tighten up the text. Okay. So what, what really got made you get the, come up with the idea for something like Nain, which I believe is the fantasy setting? Well, Nain is a fantasy setting and that, that is well, one of them. It was reading JK Rowling and uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there. We, I did not go to any uh, great lengths to conceal my uh, my Rowling homages in there. Uh, one of the main castles, its name is Glenrow, which is an anagram of Rowling. But I, you know, part of it is you read Harry Potter and you're like, man, what was the Wizarding World like in like the 1400s or you know even earlier? You know, in in your medieval times or dark ages. And so that seemed really interesting. Uh, I wanted to crack, take a crack at an Ars Magica style noun verb wizardry system. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, let's just let's go with the sort of standard witchy setup and, you know, and, and set it up so that you can explore a lot of the issues that that Rowling was really interested in, which were. Uh, you know, issues of class and, uh, you know, issues of loyalty and, you know, and, and big fancy wizard schools. So that was, that was the inspiration for it. I just, I can't remember what the first thought in those directions were, but once I started thinking about it, I'm like, you could do this. This could be really cool and really fun. And so that's where that came from. Uh, And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to see that illustrated well, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm looking. I'm I'm particularly looking forward to Out of the Violent Planet because that just seems like a cool setting. Uh, I I think that in terms of strength of idea, uh, I think Out of the Violent Planet was one of the better ideas. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, listening at home, the premise is that aliens show up on Earth and it it goes wrong uh, in the uh, oh, what was the movie with Gort. Day the Earth Stood Still. The day the Earth Stood Still. Thank you. It goes wrong with that, uh, but it's the aliens who, you know, first person's looking at this alien, the alien kind of looks at it and then just swats her aside and eviscerates her. And the nervous cops open fire on the murdering alien, and it just turns into this giant mess. And what it emerges is that the aliens had not recognized her as a sentient being because they have never in their entire experience of the galaxy found a sentient race that was not also telepathic. So the aliens have written language, but no spoken language because they just beam thoughts across and their experience of conflict is completely different from the human experience, because instead of building weapons, their main tactic is, okay, we've got this guy who can ego enslave you and make it so that the only thing that gives you any pleasure is obeying his orders. We just want to get him as close to a bunch of your people as possible. He'll turn them into fawning sycophants and then we win. So if you're fighting alien style, the last thing you want to do is mass your troops. You want to have everyone as diffuse as possible. So, you know, one of their tactics is this this ego enslavement thing, or there are others who can just, you know, take your body over possession style. So there or, you know, rip out your darkest secrets so that they're these terrifying psychic titans, except none of it works on humans. And, you know, they they try to take your body over and your eyelid twitches and they try to you know, crush your soul so that you live only to serve them. And you think, did I just smell a little vanilla? No, I didn't. I'm just <laughs> imagining that. And so they just don't know what to do with mankind and humans' weapons. Because they're like, they make machines that kill things? What the hell? What are we supposed to do with these murder apes? And and there are, uh, it's set up that there are these two giant, 
empires, one that is mostly run by the guys who are really, really good at uh, ego enslavement. And the other is run by a species that's really, really good at warp technology because there's or warp the warp discipline. There's no technology that can move faster than light, but certain species have psychic powers that can poke wormholes through space. And that's the only way to travel is doing psychic stuff. People on Earth, of course, think that this is just a lie the aliens are telling them because they don't want us to have warp drives. And so every government on Earth is scheming to capture an alien spaceship and recreate the warp drive. And it's like, no, there is no warp drive. There's just warp dudes. And if you try to capture one, it will be a warp dude back on his home world. And so the, the question in Out of the Violent Planet is, what are you going to do with this? What is humankind's place in between these giant psychic empires? And there's a few other free planets floating around in the mix who have maintained their independence, basically by being too much trouble to conquer. And so, you know, you might wind up allied with them or you might wind up with one of these intolerable, you know, horrifying government government monstra. What would you call that? Uh, monstrocracy? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Monstrocracy. I, I, I got to trademark that. Let's make a game called that. I'd play it. That's out of the violent planet in which it is presumed that the uh, the characters that are what are known as private contractors or PCs for short. Ooh, I like and it. So you might be one of the, you know, the one in a million person who's just a little bit psychic enough that you can understand when aliens think language, you know, beam thoughts to you. You can actually receive them. But that's a very two edged sword. Or you might be, you know, one of the soldiers that the government has been saying, just go do what the aliens tell you and they'll give us a cure for cancer. So there's there's a lot of possibilities with that. And, you know, every every now and then I'm like, I should do an out of the violent planet short story or novel or something. But I can never think of the perfect plot line or through line. So but it might come one day. I could wake up with it tomorrow. One of the things I'm uh, I'm looking forward to, I'm hopeful for about the uh, the rain Kickstarter is I did. You suggested, you know, go find a bunch of new authors. Well, we've been getting Hal and I have been been getting pitches for like rain mini settings. And I want to set it up so that some of these won't have any new rules in them. It'll just be OK for this setting for the uh, you know, you're going to want the storms at C1 and the naval battle stuff, but that's it. Cause uh, that was, uh, you know, one guy's pitching an 18th century age of golden age of sale, but with clock, you know, sort of the, the, the steampunk clockwork stuff going on in it. Right. Caleb Stokes has a, uh, an idea he's calling a day zero utopia experiment. Uh, the setup there is that, uh, the PCs have somehow come into contact with this isolated other dimension. And in that dimension, time runs faster. And the PCs are the only people who can go back and forth. In the dimension, some guy that, that Caleb is uh, you know coding as Spartacus has just overthrown the Lich Kings who have ruled there for hundreds of years. And, you know, freed the slaves, big slave uprising, you know, the Lich King's dead, long live whomever. And he's, you know, told the PCs, look, you are the only people that the Lich Kings, you know, since you came in here from the outside, the Lich Kings never got a chance to brand you with the rune that keeps you from from leaving. None of us can leave. None of us can contact the outside world. And none of us have any idea how to do anything except be slaves to the Lich King. We're, you know, we only like eight of us can read, you know, we know how to farm because they had us making food, but we don't know anything about governance or philosophy or please bring us people and things that will teach us to be smart. Cause otherwise this is just going to turn into anarchy real fast. 
So the PCs go out and get to decide who they're going to bring in. And the order in which they bring people in is very important because if you bring scientists in first, but no thinkers or philosophers, you get this, this kind of dystopian, uh, cause you know, when you go out, when you come back, it, uh, it's like 50 years later, right? Every time you leave, if you're gone for a couple months scrounging up some philosophers, you come back in and in the bottle realm, a couple decades have passed. So you get to see your, uh, your interference over the course of generations in real time or in accelerated time. So that's one of the settings that, uh, that I'm, I'm kind of excited about. Another new author or new writer I've been working with has, and has ideas for setting up you're the pantheon of a newly created universe. So Robin Laws did that. And I'm, I'm curious to see someone else take it on with the rules for rain. Alan Goodall, who, if you're a wild talents fan, he's the guy who did this favored land, which was sort of low key superheroes in the American civil war. Right. Yeah. So he's also fascinated with feudal Japan, early feudal Japan. So, you know, sort of, clashing states period with Japanese folkloric supernatural stuff. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, I went to people and said, Hey, what's, what's the one you've always wanted to do. And there's, you know, there's several others. We've got a a number of people. And and as soon as I was, you know, I, I, I talked to some people about it and I've been, you know, on social media and here and there talking about doing the rain relaunch. And so a, a couple other Writers just came out of the woodwork saying, hey, man, if you're taking rain pitches, here's mine. It's like Western meets Norse mythology, but it's apocalyptic. And I'm like, "Okay, guy. Oh, wow. I mean, I think I've heard that before. Apocalyptic Norse Western. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, that's just basically every Savage Worlds game at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl has been done time and again. But every writer finds their way to put a fresh spin on it. True. So, I mean, this is, well, now we're getting into, uh, you know, a discussion of what is creativity and at what point is creativity in the service of creating a good experience and at what point is the experience being used as sort of an excuse to just be as as uh, weird and out there as possible i think it might have been roy blount who said it's easy to be creative if you're stupid uh you know if you tie a necktie around your leg you're you're an inner you're an innovator it's just a pointless stupid innovation and you know the point is to innovate in a direction that says something interesting or that shows something universal in a new light. And recontextualizing an idea, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, you know, what got me into rain in the first place was, okay, if people really were wizards and mighty warriors, they wouldn't be running off to raid temples all the time they would it would be more like a uh, more like a gangster movie or more like a police drama or more like a more like one of these these epic russian novels where it's all about oh well you know during the war everyone's life changed and so i i looked for mechanics to do that and the the ones i found were the the players in these stories are not just the mere humans the players in these stories are also the societies and the communities that they are leading. And so you've got stats for societies and communities and you've got rules that govern, okay, what does it mean when to choose a relevant example, one society decides it's going to use its spies to influence the decisions made in another community. How do you respond to that? Uh, How, you know, what, what, what are the options you have to make that stop or, what are the options you have to adapt to it if you're the one that is on coming out on top after the meddling? In a lot of ways, Rain is could be called a system about systems. Sure. A system about social systems. Yeah, which is what I mean. Like yeah, which not is always a, a, not a system thing. about game systems. God, that would that would get exhausting and recursive. And we're just talking about like lacuna or something. <laughs> 
Although, okay, there was a novel I started writing once and never finished, but the premise was that there had been war in heaven, right? And one of the gods had been killed, but only after this massive war, the skies black with angels gutting each other. And so there have been two outcomes of this war. One, apparently it was the god of death who got killed because now nobody dies. But that's not great because if you have a fatal illness, you just have to keep on coughing terribly and being in horrible pain, but never expiring. Or if you've been stabbed and your heart stops, you still are experiencing that and are still alive while your body slowly shuts down. And so, yeah, so a lot of people have been heading to the, the far north because they found, oh, if someone has been, you know, has been hurt so badly that they would normally die, the best thing you can do for them is freeze them. So that's, you know, that's part one. That was aspect one. Aspect two was that there were all these weirdos in the battlefields who are like, yeah, there's so much stuff here we've never experienced. And, you know, you can do weird stuff with angel bones or, you know, the teeth of demons have really weird magical properties. And they're doing all these experiments to try and figure it out. And what I wanted to get at was the idea that, you know, this is year zero for inventing magic. And you could probably have a really, really fun game with that where it's, uh, you know, basically, okay, yeah, there's magic now, but nobody knows how it works and nobody has any idea what the rules are. And I actually think Brendan, now that I think about it, I think Brendan Thomas did a game like that. But, um, oh, I can picture the, the cover in my head, but I can't remember the title of it. But yeah, that was another idea that, uh, you know, that I was thinking of maybe in a couple of years when I have the time, I could do that as a rain, uh, a rain setting. But that's what System of Systems made me think of yeah. is can I make a thing where the point of the game is discovery and we are going to figure out how to do all the, you know, we're going to figure out how to get fireball and cloud kill online. But, you know, right now, all we've got is magic missile. You really want a physicist to help you with that, though. Yeah, an interesting way of doing that would be something like maybe magic uh, randomly generating the way magic works as the game goes on. Like you come to a discovery point, like an objective in Unknown Armies, and then... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you roll and see what the uh, what the dice tell you. Yeah, and then like, um, from that point forward, when you do this thing, that happens. The one roll engine would probably be actually a good fit for that. For for your your listeners who aren't familiar with the mechanic... Uh, it arose from my my days working with White Wolf and trying to figure out what the difference was between requiring more successes and making the target number higher. And so I'm like, well, what if you just had it so that the target number was determined by the numbers on the other dice? Uh, and what I came up with is you roll a pool of D10s and instead of saying, okay, how many of these are higher than seven? you see how many of them are equal to other dice in the pool. So you're looking for sets, uh, a little bit like poker. So you might get a pair of eights and three fours. And what this allowed me to do as I tinkered with it, because again, you know, uh, right out of storyteller system as well, sometimes you need to get a lot of successes, but sometimes it's hard to get successes because the target numbers are higher. And so I'm like, okay, I can find I can pull information out of this out of sets and roles on two axes instead of just having it be a, a binary success or fail. Uh, you know, it might be that I get a success that is low but has a bunch of dice in it, you know, five ones. And I can have that mean different mean something different and be a different kind of success than two tens. And the system was built around the idea that there is this distinction between a wide success and a high success and sort of playing around with exchanging those and rebalancing them. I think it might have been the guy, you know, uh, the Dread game with the Jenga Tower? Yeah. yeah. I think it was the guy who designed that. Um, uh, Dread? Yes. And his name, I, I don't think I can pronounce his name. Epidiaramavum? Something like that. 
something with an R, and I'm not even sure this is the right guy, but someone was on Twitter talking about game design around a core loop. And I'm like, core loop, what the hell's a core loop? But he helpfully defined it. And the core loop is the thing you do over and over in the game that is fun. He's like, figure out what it is that your players do over and over in your game that makes it fun and have everything point towards that. And I'm like, okay, that phrases something that I've been thinking about, especially with the Unknown Armies rework. I'm like, what is the fun part of Unknown Armies is watching your character's mental state change and tracking the way that their decisions impact their lives. So I aimed everything more at those, uh, you know, the meters that, that track your personality in Unknown Armies and linked more things into that to make it more central and more important. And so I've been asking myself, what is the core loop at Rain? And I think it's, you know, part of it is, is the, the stuff that's fun in any fantasy game is, you know, going to get in fights. I'm going to, you know, walk into extremely unstable situations and have them explode all over me. But also I think the dice mechanic are part of the, co- is, is part of the fun of rain is the fiddliness, not fiddly in a bad way, but fiddly in a fun way, the way that you can, you know, adjust your pool, the way that you can switch things around so that you might get a higher result or switch things around so that you might get a wider result. And that. It is a system that allows you to be good at it, not just lucky at it. But at the same time, it's not a system that's so complicated that you need a PhD in it to be effective at all. I mean, we've all played those games. The, the, the famous example from back in my youth was champions math, right? That if you were good at champions math, at character generation, you could make Mighty Thor while everyone else was stuck with, you know, some street level sub daredevil guy. Right. And so, you know, if you were good at the game as defined by, I am able to min max the system most efficiently, that was, you know, that was rewarding, but it kind of sucked all the fun out of those poor guys who, who didn't get to be mighty Thor. So I'm like, I, I do want to reward people who pay attention to the game and, figure out the little optimizations to it, the ways to tweak the system to get the result you want. But I don't want it to be so deep in that direction that it's no fun for the casual player. So again, you know, it's the balancing act. Right, I can understand that. It's it's a fascinating thing. It's, it's tricky. And, you know, over the course of my career, what I've had the bitter pill I've had to swallow over and over is that you can't satisfy everybody and you can't make everybody happy uh, with just one design. Yeah. But you know, that's why I'm constantly doing different stuff. So yeah, there it is. Hey, Aaron, you have any questions for Greg here? I honestly, I didn't really know anything about rain. So I was kind of just here to learn uh, to learn about it. Uh, He is our audience surrogate. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, is there anything I've left unexplained? No, you've you've done a pretty good job of explaining everything. Well, um, I've, I mean, I've had an idea for a possible setting for rain uh, since you've been talking, so that's cool. <laughs> uh, gotcha. Yeah, I, I've been picturing sort of. I don't know if you've seen Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Uh, I ha- I was not crazy about that Dracula, honestly. I don't care for it much either, but I kind of like the idea of a bunch of different land-owning vampires in a world or a country with an aesthetic like that split up okay. into a bunch of different little, uh, you know, and it's so the players. The players would be the vampires, and their the company that they're ruling would be their uh, their adoring thralls. Uh, you could do that, or you could you could have your players be humans trying to move and set things up underneath these vampires without being noticed. Okay. Like trying to not, to not raise any, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. So it's Knights black agents only without all the, the Jason Bourne guns. Yeah. You're just trying to survive and not be noticed by these undead things that will gleefully kill you. Well, yeah. And I mean, this is, this is something that I've tried to, you know, if there's a through, if there's a through line in, many of my designs it's it's that i want to put more plot control in the hands of the players 
And that, you know, that that's my shortcut for player buy-in is, okay, the reason you're going to want to play this game and the reason you're going to be interested in it is the reasons you decide. You know, this has hit sort of a high mark with unknown armies where it's like, okay, no, tell me what, tell me what the game is about players. Tell me what the objective that you're chasing is. Tell me what the thing you can't tolerate that you're going to tear down is and how you're going to do that. And that's the game that I will run for you. Uh, And in the same way, rain was okay. Tell me who is looking to you for leadership, who is relying on your judgment to, uh, to chart their course. And, you know, tell me what the game's about and I'll run that for you. Rain is maybe a little more traditional in the sense that the, the GM can say something like, okay, we're going to do a game. You know, you get, you're free to make any character you want as long as it's a wizard in Nain who's, going, who's attending the Bleak Monastery starting this year. But I mean, even within those constraints, you can make all kinds of characters. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm the guy who didn't become a wizard until he was 18, which is really old. So I'm the 18 year old starting wizard and everyone else in my classes is like 12, 13. And it's very awkward. And there's someone else. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm the wizard from the. you know, from a, a long family that's had a lot of wizards and they all wanted me to go to the war college, but I'm going to the nerd college and they're, they're not happy about it. Uh, and my mentor is someone who hates my family. So that's, that's quite special. And, you know, and the third, third character, third player can be, you know, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm from a peasant family. That's, that's never, that hasn't had a wizard for generations. And so they've pinned all their hopes on me and, they want me to come here and make a bunch of connections so that their peasant lives will be elevated. So, you know, those are all uh, good Nanian concepts and you could set up a, a wacky game in there. Or you yeah, could but- open it up wider and say, you know, oh, no, you guys get to pick which school you're going to. Or you could say, OK, we're just going to use Nain and whatever. Yeah. I've got Billy Madison meets Hogwarts in my head now because of this description. <laughs> <laughs> then my what a combo. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we haven't heard of uh, Fraser Crane in space, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I started out trying to think of my, my, my new rain game being kind of like Imperialism Stargate, where, you know, it's Stargate, but you know, whatever. That seemed like a cool concept. Then I went off on Billy Madison. So it's it's an interesting evening. But I, <laughs> speaking of inspirations, Greg, I, I mm-hmm. was wondering what is what are some of your new inspirations for this new edition of Rain? Anything new that's kind of influenced you heavily? Well, you know, Game of Thrones has since come out. I've never watched the show. It you know, before it came out, I, I heard and I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, some of the early reviewers were like, yeah, it's good, but you have to tolerate it being super rapey. And I'm like, I don't think that's where I want to go for my entertainment. <laughs> but what have I watched or read that has has sort of put me on this uh, in this direction? Well, ton of West Wing. The West Wing is, you know, is basically a rain game without the swords and wizards. So that's a good one. A lot for a while there, you know, I keep talking about the the ships at sea thing. And so, you know, at some point I went through a Raphael Sabatini and uh, Arturo Perez Rivert has a, uh, a series of novels set in, in historical Spain. And they're they're non uh, they're non fantasy. They're historical fiction. But it's all this, you know, political intrigue. And everyone is just really kind of a bastard and you know it's it's sort of historical medieval noir uh with the one of perez revert is this this very macho uh spanish writer one of the periods that i think seems to really fascinate him is the end of the age of swordplay. He wrote a great book called The Fencing Master, where the main character is this aging fencing master. So this this fantastic swordsman. And his job is to teach the next 
generation of nobility how to fence. And they're all like, I don't want to learn how to fence. That's boring old farts shit. Why would I need to learn how to fence? We've got cannons and muskets now. I'm never going to get close enough to be in hand-to-hand knife fighting combat with someone. And the, the fencing master's like, I feel so sorry for you poor bastards. War used to be glorious. You know, you were pitting your skill and mind and body against someone else in a duel to the death. And all you assholes have to look forward to is ambushes and bombardments. And he's, he just throws his hands up. He's like, war's going to be garbage from here on out. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this was, you know, he's not wrong. He has the advantage of being written by someone in the, the 20th or 21st century. But, uh, you know, that that was the book where I'm like, wow. So, yeah, no, really old timey war was very, very different. And uh, it's if you get if you're a huge history nerd, that explains a little bit about World War One, where, you know, so many people in Europe was so many people in Europe were expecting it to not be as awful as it was because they hadn't realized where the technology had gone. If they'd, if they'd paid more attention to the American civil war, they would have probably foreseen trench warfare and, uh, you know, been a little less enthusiastic about getting into it. But, you know, they all thought it was going to be this noble, glorious in cavalry charge, but now we've got airplanes thing done by Christmas. We'll be home for Christmas. <laughs> My my son has turned into this colossal history nerd. And so, you know, we were joking about you could do a cartoon where you've got the Kaiser looking at this box that's, you know, like the Great War. And it's, you know, the guy on the, the horse waving the sword and grinning. And then he's looking at the actual model. And it's just, you know, this muddy trench with body parts. And he's like, this looks nothing like what was on the box. <laughs> <laughs> So as far as Rain's future here, are we looking for a Kickstarter in the immediate future or what, what are you kind of The Kickstarter for? should be happening pretty soon. Hal is off at, at uh, Gamma right now, and he's got sort of the video assets he needs to assemble for the, uh, the Kickstarter video. Okay. So mostly we've, you know, we've got the writers lined up. We've already got the text. Uh, the text was... Another thing where I figured it would be fairly simple and straightforward, and it turned into a uh, slogging nightmare with no with no win condition. The task, the texts for the ring books and supplements have been written over you know the course of more than a decade on several different word processors, laid out in different formats on different machines, and so just extracting the text from the formatting so that I could rewrite it turned into, you know, I had to make multiple attempts at that. So it, that has not been at all easy, but you guys don't have to worry about any of that. (laughs) Nope. That's, that's all the secret work that I've been doing for the last, uh, last month. Awesome. Are you self-publishing or is this going to be going through? This is going to be going through Hal. This will, which will ideally bring prices down and raise the quality. I mean, if I'd wanted to do a, a self-published version, I could have, but I I think rain has got enough history and enough people uh, fired up about it that it can support the, the sort of, publication infrastructure that a really good looking version requires. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm really, uh, I'm really hopeful that this can bring a lot, a lot of uh, new people to it. Well, I've already promised myself. I'm not going to do like I did with the unknown armies Kickstarter and like, I don't want to slip case. The books are okay. So if you have anything (laughs) like that, I, I mean, I've been kicking myself in the ass for two years. Not getting the slip, get the slip cases. Neat. Uh, there will, I'm, I'm sure we will, uh, come up with some, some options for, uh, the really high end. What I want, you know, my dream, we probably won't get this, but I would love to do like embossed leather covers, you know, with the, the soulless style art on them, but instead of being printed on it's embossed, but that is probably a bridge way too far. However, 
Hal was showing me a sample he'd gotten from some printer where it looks embossed. It doesn't exactly feel like leather, but it has a very leathery look. So we might be going with that. But on the other hand, one of the advantages of getting new artists who are skilled and professional is that even the, you know, the basic version is going to look great. I've, I've seen some of the, uh, the art they're turning in and it's, you know, thrilling. We've got a real, uh, the, the, the figure from the first rain book the you know, the woman in the armor, we've yeah. got now a realistic version of her. So Ooh. yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna be good. I hope <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing what you got. Yep. Yep. Uh, for, well, hopefully everyone who hears this will be curious too. And oh, yeah, this you know, and great. if you are, Go to gregstolze.com and, uh, you know, fish around. We'll, we can put the links in the show notes, I'm sure, where so you can read the texts of all these, you know, supplements that have been released for free. And, you know, read that and see if you're interested in getting it in an updated, tangible, better organized format, because that's coming soon. Well, this is, I'm excited. As usual, whenever you come out with a new thing, I'm probably going to be one of the first folks on board. Cool. Thank you. You're one of the good ones. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. I, I like Unknown Armies too much to be good. <laughs> True. He's, he's Thank really you. Not. You're one of the chaotic neutral ones. <laughs> uh, Greg, for the record, real quick, last time you were on, they mentioned a player who uh, hung himself behind an Arby's. That was me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you couldn't even make it a lion's choice, huh? <laughs> Oh, that character did much worse things. Uh, Greg, I need you to weigh. I need you to weigh in on this. I mean, Uh, this may make it on the podcast or not, but we got to settle. Aaron, how did that player meet his ends? And I just want, I just want Greg to react. Which one? Mine. uh, That character. Uh, Well, there is a a slight case of self-immolation. Now, I'd like to point out it's partly the GM's fault. So what? No. Oh, go ahead and blame the victim there. No, no. Yeah, he was like, he's like, no, Aaron, do you want to? I was like, I just want to run through the fire. And he's like, okay, so you want to, you want to stand in it? And I was like, I'm for a second, sure. And then next thing I know, it's like, yeah, you're covered in third degree burns. Son of a bitch. <laughs> then they loaded me into the bed of a pickup truck. God oh. damn it. Well, uh, you successfully the, faked the, your own death by dying. Yeah, <laughs> the ritual. That we don't. We don't it know does, if he's dead. It doesn't we, we count as faking your death if you actually die. That's. <laughs> we haven't continued that game yet, so we don't know if he's dead. But okay. Also involved pouring a circle of grain alcohol in the desert, lighting it on fire, and then pulling my own tooth out to throw it in said fire. <laughs> Yeah, I cannot imagine pulling out my own. T- I suppose if it was really, you know, if the tooth was pre-messed up, I already yeah. had like the terrible gum disease, but you know, I'm taking such careful care of my teeth. It ended up it ended up being on the other players and they all had to make violence checks as they, they pulled my tooth out. So, <laughs> you know. So, I just, we we have ridden him pretty hard over that death there for well over years, so I just Glad to have the opportunity to share that with you. Well, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for that gift. <laughs> are you guys coming to Gen Con this year? They are. I, yeah. I will be back at the Arc Dream booth this year, so should be fun. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. Uh, well, I have a real quick question for you about just some of your other projects. It's been on sure. Kickstarter recently. I see that the podcast that you've been doing uh, – Termination uh, shock. Termination shock. Yeah, just today I uh, wrote a check to an artist to you know do some illustrations for that. So that one I am going to self-publish. Initially, it will probably be as a uh, a print-on-demand game. So I'm I'm okay. you know, coming up with stuff for that. But yeah, I've been having I, I've actually gotten to play it. Uh, you know, so I've been a player and not a GM, and that has been. That's been very fun and educational because, you know, from the other side of the screen, I'm like, man, these TNs are high. It's, <laughs> it's hard to succeed in this game. But what it has turned out to be, you know, it, it's one of those insights about the mechanics that you only get by playing it is that if you are up against something inanimate, you know, uh, an inanimate challenge with a target number, 
those are very hard. But if you're up against another person or an alien or another entity that has to roll, that's just random and all over the place. So I uh, and, and I think that is a dynamic that can work really well because it encourages players to achieve their goals by interacting with interesting people and aliens rather than just by like, oh, well, I'll, I'll just get this by uh, by working hard for it. Yeah, I actually like that as an idea more. So I, I've been having a lot of fun and, you know, coming up with all kinds of crazy gadgets to put in the science fiction setting. So it's it's in the point where it's expanding. I'm trying to write rules for uh, how ships fight other ships. And so there's a lot of there's, uh, you know, I've come up with like five or six different ways I could do that. And, I'm you know, it's like, no, pick one. What do I want the experience of ship combat in termination shock to be like. So that's where, that's where experience really helps. Yeah. Uh, before I would have just written some mechanics that I thought sounded cool and seen what the experience that came out of those mechanics was. And I would have been like, that's, that's what I meant to do all along. But now <laughs> I've gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, let's figure out what I want this to be like, and then write rules that make it, that way it's awesome i'll go ahead and put a link in the show notes so i think if i'm not mistaken the podcast pretty much that you recorded anyone can listen to that yes it's on soundcloud you can just go there download it do whatever the first couple episodes the sound quality is it's you know it's not terrible it's not bad but it is not where it is now uh i yeah, I figured out how to podcast better. So after the first couple episodes, the sound quality improves. I'm still trying to figure that out. And I've been doing this for two years. So <laughs> it's yeah. This, this was just stuff like, okay, you should put headphones on so that the sounds coming out of your speakers don't go back into your microphone. So it's yeah, that's yeah, a big one. It's it's kindergarten kind of stuff like <laughs> that. So. I found out on Audacity that uh, there is a button under the effects that truncates all the silence that I've been editing out by hand yes. for two fucking years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is why I hired producer Ross. I edited the first few myself, and I'm like, this is like having a real job. I hate it. <laughs> So and that's really uh, what you go into game design for, you know, a, hey, st- a world, stable, steady job. Mm, the world, I, I I believe deep in my heart that the world is better off having me as a game designer than having me as a heart surgeon. So, I mean, I mean and yeah, there were other options in there, but you know, this I'm good at every, every <laughs> other job I've had, I've been at best adequate. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm getting choked up here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Stolzy. <laughs> All right. I love that you're adequate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, be sure to stop by uh, the Arc Dream booth uh, when I'm uh, when I'm there at Gen Con this year, and that goes for you know your listeners as well. And yeah, I hope everyone keeps an eye out for the uh, the Rain Kickstarter. All right. Well, until next time, then. Uh, Greg, right. I'll have a, I have a coffee mug for you this summer. Okay. Yeah. Or a coffee mug or the T-shirt. Either one's great. He wanted the shirt. He's got enough mugs. I honestly have enough shirts too, but you know, it's like a trophy. (laughs) You have conquered us. And now you have our shirts. Yeah. Every job that I've quit, I always quit after they give me the coffee mug. I think I'm kind of like the predator. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) The worst predator. (laughs) Well, Or the best predator. <laughs> Are you going to go hunt intergalactic species? Eh, I got the mug. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, we appreciate you coming on, man. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been fun. You have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. A special thanks to Greg Sozi for being so gracious to come on here and discuss rain with us. Always a pleasure. And speaking of pleasure, Chris, what was that pleasurable music that was playing at the beginning of this episode? Ghost I mean, mice. <laughs> it's critical hit by the band Ghost Mice. Um, I think Patrick would disagree with you on pleasurable, but... <laughs>
he's wrong. And you can always check out more uh, fun- folk punk goodness at uh, Planet X Records. Awesome. Speaking of things you can check out, we are located at www.realpointexchange.com. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash realpointexchange. And Chris, what is our Twitter? Our Twitter is at RPXchange. Here's a little known, unknown fact, folks. I never remembered the Twitter name, but I knew Chris's email. I reset his password and now has gained control of the Twitter account that I cannot remember the name of. But hey, that's, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Anyway, we're a, we're a real uh, <laughs> professional operation here at RPX. It's like I, watching a monkey try to fuck a football. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we will leave you with that mental image. Thank you, folks. And <laughs> God, we didn't think this through. We did not. Oh, later. Not all fights are won by skill. Number one by luck. Don't ever give in. You've got to keep on trying till you lose or you win. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Wait with hope for the big 2-0. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Let it roll, let it roll, let it roll. Let it roll.